All right, trivia time. Told you I was going to do these. How many can name or identify the purpose and reason for the Nicene Creed besides Joe? Who's left and went to the video room to watch me? No, you're there. Oh, well, this is bad. Anybody know? Repeat it. Good. Uh, who can actually tell me the reason or the purpose of what's being covered in the Nicene Creed? Fourth century. French, nice, nice. Uh, no, no. Let me give you this. These are things to know. An amazing thing is the Nicene Creed gave us such a solid foundation that we sit on today. These are our church fathers. You need to understand and know the church fathers. There's a lot of great books, a lot of information on the Internet. Some of it weird, but I think you can get through it. When the Nicene Creed was drawn up, the chief enemy was Arianism, which denied that Jesus was fully God. You see why this thing was important and is important today? Arius was presbyter or elder in Alexandria in Egypt in the early 300s. He taught that the Father in the beginning created, or Egypt, oh sorry, created, I'm slipping lines here, created the Son and that the Son in conjunction with the Father then processed or proceeded to create the world. The result of this was to make the Son a created being and hence not God in any meaningful sense. So through the Nicene Creed, we actually learned and were able to articulate and develop that Jesus is not begotten or born, but he's the first of in order. And the fact, too, that it's solved and addressed this issue. Now, here's the trivia question. I love this. It's going to be doing this whole day, right? Big question. What group today revived this Aryan mindset, this falsehood? Yes, sir. Jehovah's Witnesses. That's their whole premise. And it sits right on this heresy. And so the interesting thing is to understand the Nicene Creed. And you can get a whole copy of it and read it. It's extremely clear. It's not like you're going to have to understand ancient language. There's a lot of great translations that help us to understand. The creed they followed after that is the Chalcedonian Creed, and of course it deals, these both deal with Jesus Christ, and they also deal with the Holy Spirit, and the fact that we're talking about the Trinity. So, excellent pieces to understand and know. Another piece of trivia, now I'm going to ask Brian Sloan, how'd you do this week? I did pretty good. Did you get through all the days? I did. Okay, what, now James, what was James's book? He took the idea that MacArthur had, that I shared, that before you start studying a book, read it through every day for 30 days. Brian's gotten to day seven, I guess. Is it starting to fade? You're starting to struggle? No, I'm, I'm reading it in, uh, and I, I'm trying to read it in three different versions. Ooh, okay. So I'm not memorizing specific yada yada, but I'm just uh, trying to get to know the book. <coughs> About day 10, I found it with myself. About day 10, you start going, hey, this thing again. <laughs> About past that, all of a sudden you start flying and you start coming above the text and it becomes the most rich event that you could ever imagine. So, anybody else tried anything like that this last week? How about one recommendation? I said, read the book of John. Anybody start reading John 
Excellent. Good, good. Did you, was it rich? Of course, it's rich with the scriptures, you know. What are we going to say? All right, let's get started in our text. What's the format that I'm trying to do? format I'm trying to do is basically walk you through studying the Word of God. And basically, you're getting an exposition of my mind, what I'm going through, what I take a look at, what I see. Some of it might scare you, but that's fine. So let's continue in our study in, in John 6. What have we seen so far? What do, we, what do we actually have now in our wealth of knowledge? We know that John, even though he doesn't state in the text that he is the writer or the author of the book, it's the early church fathers who attest that it's John who's the writer. Also notice, too, that all of the gospel writers don't identify themselves as the writers. It's the early church fathers that put that on. Now, there's a twist with John. He writes with as in the same as the other gospel writers in the third person. Do you remember what perspective he wrote in that was different than just being in the third person? Yes, ma'am. Right, it's a reflective pattern. He's actually summarizing. You can see and you can feel a lot where this stuff has gone back through him. And it's deeply emotional. The theme, anybody remember the theme? Okay, it's the personal work of Jesus is his focus. Now again, John's not covering everything. He even tells you. He says, I, I could have, and if there is the possibility that you could actually write everything that Jesus did, it would fill itself in a, in a whole series of books that would overload a library. He says it's an impossibility. There's no way we can cover it. Another thing, too, I know this is like review. We have a gap, don't we, in time? Between chapter 5 and chapter 6, we have a gap. What's our gap? We're looking at about 6 to 12 months. We're either looking at the time period from chapter 5 is talking about the Feast of the Tabernacles, which would be the 6th month, or he's literally talking about the fact that he's gone back to another Passover. So that would be the 12-month period. So we're looking at 6 or 12 months. We went through a list of all the events that occurred in that time period. That helped. The 12 apostles have just returned. We're at the time of the Passover, so keep this stuff in your, in your mind as you're thinking through this text. They've just come back from being sent out by Jesus to do ministry. They're tired. They're exhausted. What else has happened? Anybody remember anything that would be specifically close to Jesus? What event had occurred? John the Baptist has been executed, and Jesus' desires for all of them to, to get away into a remote part for renewal and for mourning to actually deal with those issues. So they depart from Capernaum. You'll also understand, too, as you read through the text, you read through everything in the Scriptures, you realize Capernaum tends to be like their home base, and a lot of times they're going back and to and fro. Capernaum is kind of a central place, but they're going from Capernaum to Bethsaida. Bethsaida is where? Remember? I'm going to do it this way because I know. <laughs> I remember what I did. All right, what do we have over here? We have the Mediterranean Sea. We have this region up here, which is Galilee. Everyone see me? All right, what else do we have? We have... Sea of Galilee, or better known as what? Lake Tiberias, okay? And the Jordan River. Over here, we have Samaria. Down here, we have Judea with Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. What else is down here in this lower part? Egypt, okay? You have your, ma- you have your maps out? Did anybody look at your maps this week? 
just kind of get an orientation? It helps, doesn't it? All right, so Bethsaida is just on the north shore, the east of Galilee. And we see that in verse 2, a large crowd had been following him. Why was this crowd following him? What does the text actually identify? Why are these people following Jesus? Healing people. Well, they are now, definitely, because they've actually spent some time under Jesus' teaching, and they're hungry. So we'll see that as we fill in. We also asked ourselves a question, why do we follow Jesus? Did you spend some time at home this week examining your life and taking a look and digging deep and going, why do I follow Jesus? Because of what I can get? Because he takes care of me? Those good times, I get grumpy at God when they're bad times. Why do you follow Jesus? Is it like this crowd of people? James Montgomery Boyce states, I love this. This one I have quoted now in my head so many times. So we have so little faith in things unseen and eternal. We draw so little on the resources of Christ. We come not to him with our spiritual wants, our empty vessels, and draw, I love this, from the ocean of his grace. Doesn't that reverberate? That's where we go to. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. All right, so chapter 6. Let's go to verse 3. Moving a little bit further. I know, I told you. It's, it's going to be like uh, the beginning movie of The Hobbit, right? It's going to take some time to get everything developed. It took us the whole time. Verse 3, we pick up and we see that Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, again, you go back to the other Gospels and start filling the blank because John is going to be giving you the big outline. He's giving you big pieces. He's not filling in all the raw detail. You go to the other texts of Scripture to start filling in the detail. Let me get a little bit more fill in for verse 3, Mark 6:34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, underscore compassion. This is Jesus' heart. This is God's compassion for man. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So what have they acquired now? They've spent time with Jesus, and he has been teaching them the truth. What an amazing thought to be in the presence of God, being taught directly by God. And you know those are specific lessons for the needs of the people. What a rich time that these folks had. Verse 4, we move a little further. It says, now the Passover, again, we, we mark and circle the time. The Feast of the Jews was at hand. So we're talking about now an event. Now, where are we? We're in Galilee. We're up north. What do we have? We have another region that would have to go through if we wanted to go down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. That would be through Samaria, which they wouldn't go, and to get all the way down to Judea. So there's a possibility that we're thinking, this, we can't be dogmatic on, on this, but there's a possibility that the crowd that's with Jesus at this time could be folks that have in their mind, ultimately, they end up down in Jerusalem for the, for the feast. But they are traveling down, possibly, and they could be the elements of this crowd. That's rough thinking. No absolute, no dogmatism we can actually put there. We cannot hold this dogmatically, and the one thing that we do know is that they are following Jesus because, the text says, because of the signs and wonders. And again, we ask that question of ourselves. Why do we follow Jesus? Signs and wonders, the impressive things. And also, the Passover is significant to the text. 
in that it helps us position ourselves in the minds of all the Jews. Again, you and I are dealing with a 2,000-year differential in culture, language, time period, everything. It's not us, so we have to do a little bit more digging to get into it. What do they think concerning the Passover? What's the mindset of a Jew right now? Is the Passover is coming? What's what's in their thinking? What what's kind of their 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 point in what they're doing and what's happening? They remember that they were slaves in Egypt and God rescued them and provided for all their needs while they were on the journey in the journey in the wilderness. What else would be going through their minds? A lot of review in their own thinking of what God did, His faithfulness is. And what also generated the thing? National pride. These people are, are set on a national pride. Take a look at uh, Deuteronomy 29, 2. We're actually do 2B, 3, and 5. I know it's cut up a little bit. And look at, what, look at what's being stated here. You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all of, the, all of, his, all of his servants, and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. Again, this is in their thinking possibly. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. This amazes me. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. How long were they in the wilderness? 40 years, clothes don't wear out. How many had to go shopping for clothes for the kids this week? Yeah, yeah, all right, enough said. It's an emotional time. Again, it is strong national pride. Remember, we're going to start seeing this play a little as we get further into the text, as we get moving further through it. All right, let's look at verses 5 and 6. He says, Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, I love this, now we're starting to get some more people involved here. Where are we to buy uh, bread? So that these people may eat. Jesus sees that they have a physiological need of food. He's been teaching them. They're there. They're kind of in the latter part of the day. It's getting late. And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. All right. Now we're at this point. We got who's the new guy that we got on the scene today in this event? Philip. What do we know about Philip? See, this is where you want to start digging in. You want to start getting as much information as you can to get some understanding of Philip, who he is, where he's at, what's going on, what's already in his thinking. How should he respond to this question? This is a test. Does he have all the information necessary to pass this test? I mean, can he go further with this, or is is this really a cheap shot? Well, let's take a look. Philip, with all that you know and have seen, how will you respond? That's the question. That's what we've got to look at. Well, the first question is, who is Philip? It's a new guy on the scene, somebody else. Well, one book that I found, and, it, and it's a great resource book, if you don't just read through the whole thing, it's John MacArthur's book on 12 Ordinary Men. It gives you a, a lot of codified detail, as much as we can, of each one of the, the apostles all the way down to the ones that Bartholomew and all the ones that you don't really remember. And if you went through and said, could you give me the 12 apostles? How many could actually name all 12? So he's one of the 12, and he's the leader of the second group of four. Do you realize there's three groups of four? That makes 12. Remember, three times four. Never mind. 
And all we know about him, which is an interesting situation here, it's his Greek name. Philip is his Greek name. Which means, of course, you kind of want to go, I don't understand how these people got their names. Lover of horses. All of the apostles were Jewish, so he must have had a Jewish name, but we were never ever told. We just know him as Philip. That's fine. Keep in mind, this is not the Philip that led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. That was Philip the deacon of Acts 6. Do you guys know that? Don't raise your hand. That's sometimes embarrassing. You get kind of rolling along and you go, I remember the apostle Philip and the eunuch and everything. And uh, That was a deacon. Sorry. So anyway, now you sat in your little note. Oh, keep that wrong. You know, keep Philip right. Philip was from the city of Bethsaida. Oh, my word. Where are we close to? Where are we at? Yep, we're in Bethsaida. The same city of Andrew and Peter. Mm, who are those guys? Okay, two brothers. A nearby city from where they are all from. Possibly a fisherman. Can't be dogmatic in that. We're just pulling this thing together. We get this from Peter's statement that he was going back fishing after the resurrection. Remember that? That wonderful time. You kind of sit there and Jesus, the resurrection, everything's moving forward. You're thinking in your mind and, and, and Peter goes, ah, let's go back fishing. And you're going, what? I don't get you, Peter. What are you doing? So in John 21, 2, we get his statement. He says, here we have a list of individuals that went with Peter. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, who are those? James and John. Means Zebedee means? Sons of? Why? How did Jesus name them? You know, they were the great missionaries that went in. The, the people rejected Jesus and, and the ministry because he, is, he was heading towards Jerusalem. And they come back and says, well, we're rejected by the city, so you want us to call fire from heaven to kind of destroy the city because they rejected you? And Jesus kind of, missionaries, wow. It's, that's not why we send Joe out, right? Is to go find some place to call fire. From, no, 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 no. You don't do that as a missionary. And the two others... Two others of his disciples were not told, but were thinking strongly because these men moved in as a group that the other two were Andrew and Philip. That's just speculation. Jesus, after calling Andrew, John, and Peter in the wilderness with John the Baptist, I'm giving you some background. Where did these guys show up? We read in John 1.43 the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. Okay, wilderness to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. So now you've got Andrew, John, and Peter are called, and Philip is called the next day. So you get an order. So he is a called apostle by Jesus. We know that Philip was a student of the Old Testament and lived in the same area with Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Probably went to the same synagogue. Probably definitely knew each other. So there's already kind of a bond there. What does he know? Well... What has he seen Jesus do? What is, he's got this test question sitting on him. Does he have enough information to ask it? I mean, isn't that what you kind of, you go to school, you study, and hopefully you got all the information you need when that test comes, right? Does he have what is needed to respond to Jesus correctly? Good point. What's he seen Jesus do was my first question. Does he have any personal information to know that Jesus is who he is and that he can actually do something about this, or is this really going to be sitting on top of Philip, and if Philip doesn't come up with the right answer, we're dead. No one's, no one's eating. We're all sitting there. It's a fasting night, right? But what's he seen? 
He's seen Jesus turn water into wine in Cana. The meeting of the Samaritan woman and Jacob's well, you remember that scene consistently. See that one and the apostles come. I love that one. I just love studying that one. Heals the official son, the demoniac in Capernaum synagogue is dealt with. Peter's mother-in-law is healed. Jesus healed the lepers, curses the curses a paralytic. I'll get it out in my mouth. Man healed at the pool of Bethesda. Get this. Jesus calms a stormy sea. You remember that one? That's the one where they're all in the boat. What's Jesus doing? Sleeping. They, these are fishermen, remember? Fishermen know exactly if the, the water's in such a condition that they're going to die. What were they convinced that was going to happen to them? They were going to die. All right? And they're incensed that Jesus is asleep. Shouldn't that have been a clue? Are you missing some of the main points here, guys? Jesus, he's not concerned. Why? And I love it. Jesus gets up, calms the water, and they're all like, huh? Kind of shocked. This is what Philip has. He's seen all these things. He knows what's going on. He saw Jesus deal with the elements because he's his creator and much, much more. John MacArthur, again in The Twelve Men, he says, piecing together all the, the apostle John records about him, it seems Philip was a classic process person. Getting kind of, you're gonna, we're going to probably get a little close to ourselves with this one. He was a facts and figures guy, by the book, practical-minded, non-forward-thinking type of an individual. He was the kind who tends to be a corporate killjoy, pessimistic, narrowly focused, and, and sometimes missing the big picture. Often obsessed with identifying reasons things can't be done rather than finding ways to do them. He was predisposed to be a pragmatist and a cynic and sometimes a defeatist, I'll get it right in the right syllable, rather than a visionary. Ooh, this is where we're sitting. This is, Philip doesn't have the natural propensity inside of him to actually get this question right. The question is now, what's he relying on? Who's he going to rely on? All right, verse 7. Now we're starting to fill in the blanks with this guy. Philip answered him. Now, now, of course, we're tuned in, right? What's this guy going to say? 200 denarii would not buy enough food for each of them to get a taste. What? That's it? That's what you come up with, Philip? Serious. You have the creator of all before you. You have seen him change water, everyday water into wine, not just any wine, but the best. Now, why do I say that? What are you thinking? Do you remember the, the event of changing water into wine? Remember? They ran out of wine at the wedding. Bad news. That would be a real faux pas for the bride and groom. That would be so embarrassing socially. But... Tradition says, and the way they would normally do it, you start giving everybody the good, good wine right at the beginning, and as everyone starts to get a little bit more pickled and their taste buds start to fade a little bit, you start putting in the cheap, you know, ripple box wine stuff, Manischewitz, I don't know, whatever that stuff is. Box wine always was weird. And, and you keep, and what, as they're fading down, you give them the cheaper stuff. And when Jesus created the wine, and the wine master took it 
up for, for uh, was given the taste to evaluate it and to, to check it, what was his wondering question? You saved the best for last. You completely flipped this thing. That's amazing. What are we getting a clue of what Jesus is doing? Does he do mediocre? He does the best. He's the supplier of the best. And how many of you actually seen anybody, heard anybody, change water into the best wine? Now, is that biologically possible? No. What do you need? Grape juice, okay? Not water. Water in a bucket ain't going to do it. You know, you can sit and leave that thing out all you want, and all the mosquitoes will come and help you. What did Jesus do? He did something from every day and taught him a great lesson. He was also authority over demons, and he had command over the elements, as, as we saw that in the violent storm. Again, you ask the question, what, Peter or Philip? What, what, what? Are you kidding me? So you look to yourself to solve an impossible need of the people. You calculate the cost. <laughs> Steve and I were talking about this. He says, yeah, he pulled out his little Jewish calculator and was going right at it. And I'm like, I never thought of it that way, but okay. He was trying to figure out how in the world you're going to be able to get enough money together to be able to get the supplies. And don't forget, we're not looking at a time period where everybody's got a, a Publix down the, on every corner and a Winn-Dixie. And there's not a store system, okay? And you've got, well, let me ask you the question. We've got 5,000 men recorded. How many people are we really talking about in the crowd? Because we're only recording men. How many women and children do we possibly have in this crowd? How many people are we really feeding here? Anywhere from fifteen to 20,000, you need to do a three or four times multiplier on that thing. So you're talking about almost 20,000 people, and, and Philip's going, <laughs> and he's probably in his mind going, I know this area, and there's not a single store that's going to have that much bread. So he says, all right, even if I do come up with eight months of wage to buy bread, if I could find a place that actually sell that much bread, that's not even going to be enough for these people to get a taste. Now, is that going to be dinner? not even going to be a snack, okay? Amazing. So Philip states that about eight months of wages is not going to do it. Philip. Why? Philip, why didn't you turn to the Creator? Why didn't you hand it back over to Jesus and go, I don't know, sir. I had a professor at Christian Heritage College. Rough stuff. But I loved it. He would give us extra points for the day if he would ask us, he'd call us right out, he would ask us individual questions, and if we didn't know it, and if we knew what we were thinking, we would say, sir, I don't know that, please tell me. That was an extra point. Why? Because I wanted to know more. I, I didn't know, it was out of my, way off my scale, I can't handle it. I'm giving it back to you, sir, because you can teach me. Why didn't Philip do that? You know, Why? You know what? Philip is just like you and I. How many times when something hits us, I don't care how big, I don't care how small, I don't care what. When something hits us, where do we go? Do we go to Jesus or do we go to ourselves? You know where Rick goes? To himself. And I smack my head so many times for doing that. I always try to analyze it. I think, well, you know, I'm, I'm old. I've gotten, hey, I got the gray hairs. I can, I've done this. Give you a little break, Jesus, because, you know, I know you're tired. I can do it. 
How many times do you and I do that? How many times do we try to do everything on our own? Even though we know every time we do it on our own, we fail. Everything is to go to God. When you can't do it, when it's not there, everything goes to God. When I was at work, I'd I'd had that mindset. I've done this since 1973. I know computers. I know the equipment. I know all this stuff. I am a brilliant dude. Something would hit. You know what I first started learning how to do real quickly? Don't rely on yourself, buddy. Well, does God know anything about computers? Well, that was a dumb question. Yes, he does. He knows everything about everything. There's nothing I'm going to throw at him and say, help. But you and I have got a problem that we do exactly what Philip does. We try to do the calculations. The text is helping us to understand it's not in your hand to even be able to do. You can't answer this. Go to Jesus. Don't even try to touch it. Go to Jesus. The first thing you and I should do in everything that we do, we go to him for everything. Yeah, but I know about it. That's fine. Go to him. I have a hard time with that. And the older I get, the more I realize I'm more, trying to be more self-sufficient. All right, let's look at Philip a little bit more. Why did Jesus ask this of Philip? Why? Philip was from Bethsaida, and Bethsaida was in the area. Boyce brings up a good point. It was natural that Jesus would turn to Philip. Therefore, for Philip, more than anyone else, knew what food was available. That's, have you ever had anybody ask you directions or where something is because you live in the area? That yeah, makes sense. The difficulty was that we knew that area of the country, that he knew the area, and could tell that there was no place to buy anything and so forgot to turn the matter over to Jesus. Maybe you got to look in your life this week and start examining going, do I do this? Am I Philip? And don't be arrogant. <laughs> no, no. Uh-uh. You and I all have the same problem. We jump into our own abilities. So again, do you see yourself in Philip? What do you do when a hard situation comes? Do you immediately start your calculators and reasoning as to how to solve the situation? Do you fret? Are there sleepless nights? <laughs> oh, boy. You know what hit me? You remember when Steve taught Psalm 3? Psalm 3 has always blown up in my mind. Background of Psalm 3, David, in a cave. Who's coming after him to kill him? Guaranteed to kill him. His son, Absalom. Who else? David's army, the one he trained. Who knows David? His army. David makes a statement in Psalm 3 that I keep going back to in amazement. He is got the most professional group to come after him, seek him out, and to find him and murder him and kill him. He's in the cave. He looks at God and he says, I trust you. Then there's a statement. If you read it too fast, you blow right past it. It says that he went to sleep and he woke up refreshed because he says, God sustains me. In Psalm 3, you see a situation that is exactly, you can't, you can't answer this, David, but he completely 100% trusts God and goes to sleep. How many times do you lose sleep because you're fretting 
and you're not overloading this thing onto God. Again, I see this in my life. So what is happening to Philip? His faith is being tested, and when they were in the boat, they had little faith. Now, let's start playing with this a little bit more. Put it another way. When it is said that I have little faith, it says that I am doing it on my own. When my faith is strong, it means that I go to God in faith, who can do all things, who strengthens me. Let, let, me, let me work with something here with you. When I have little faith, it means I am independent of God. Do you understand where that thing is? It says I want to do it on my own. Independence from God started with Adam and Eve in the garden. That was the big thing. Satan was working on her to say, hey, you don't need to worry about God. Do this thing all on your own. And she did. You and I, in our sinful nature, are always in a battle war against God to be independent. It's the sin. It's me doing what I want. In some of my classes, we've done that fun thing where you spell sin slowly. This only works in English, okay? It's Deutsch. It doesn't work. You spell sin slowly. What do you have right? What's that middle letter right in the middle of the word sin? Who? You get it? Okay. Independence says, I'm going to try to do it on my own. When I have faith, it means I am dependent on God. I'm not going anywhere else. I'm dependent upon Him. We are too confident in ourselves. We look at what we have done and can do and rely on that. I know, am I striking a nerve? (laughs) Because every time I look at this, I strike my own nerve. The nation of Israel was warned to not trust in themselves, but to rely on God, and to Him all glory is to be given. Deuteronomy 8.11. Try to read this as fast as possible. It's a pretty good-sized text, but you get an idea. God's warning them, through Moses, to be careful. He says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes, which I am commanding you today, otherwise... When you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud. Whoa. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the houses of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents, the scorpions, and thirsty ground where there was no water. And he brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. And in the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. What's the key? Self-confidence, independence. Everything that God has given you. Side note. I know, there's some people that just get three times of prayer in a day. Do you know what those three times are? Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, okay? (laughs) How many times do you ask God, says, and everything that you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the Father, right? Everything? When's the last time you gassed up at the gas station, filled up your car, and you thank God? Zero? Maybe one? Think about it. 
That means you're dependent upon him. That means you're staying focused on him. That means you know who the supplier of your needs are. You stay focused on him. You're reliant on him, and you're thankful for that. That's a key issue. Our most dangerous time is when things are going well. You notice that? You remember that? You know that. Where do you go first? Yourself or God? Philip, where do you go? Verses 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Oh, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they with so many? (laughs) Oh, Andrew, you're so close. But you quashed at the end, right? What did he do? I got some food over here, but come on. What's five and two going to do? Nothing. Oh, Andrew. So now we got another guy to talk about. Andrew. Who's Andrew? All right, Andrew is the youngest brother of Philip. Who, who, who's Andrew's brother? Anybody convinced of this? Loudly enough to be heard, spoken by all? Simon. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, get him, a, get his Greek and Hebrew name all right up there. Interesting thing. Where do we first meet Andrew? All right, see, these are the things that I hit in my head. Who is this guy? What's he doing? Where did he come from? Did he just pop up on the scene? We just, You know what? If you notice, when you read a book, they're developing characters for you as you move along. They don't just suddenly throw one right in the middle and just take off with it, and you go, who's Samantha? Where'd she come from? No, they're all developed. Scriptures are going to leave you hanging. Let's go digging into it. He is a disciple of John the Baptist. Really? Yes, really. John 1, 28 through 37, I can't read the whole thing, it'll drive us nuts. But note it for this week as you go through this, it gives you a little bit of background of where Andrew came from. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, John saying, pointing out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And then we move down and we realize we get, we've got Andrew there. And you know what Andrew did? And again, now you're going to start getting a picture of who Andrew and his temperament and what he does and why it fits for what he's doing here in John. Andrew goes out and finds whom? Finds Peter. Come Peter, 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 Peter. Come, 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 come. And who knows? He, the enthusiasm, the excitement, everything. And he tells Peter, we found him. We did. We found him. He's here and everything. And, and the excitement that, that Andrew must have had to get Peter, Peter came. He brought him to Jesus. Wow. Talk about the enthusiasm that he must have had because he literally says, standing there, he tells them that very clearly that they found him. They found Jesus. That's a pattern of Andrew. You're going to notice that. That's the way this guy works. He's going to teach us an awful lot. Verses 40 through 42 in our text. One of the two who heard John speak, oh, sorry, not in the text, John 1, sorry, I went a little bit further. One of the two who heard John speak, John the Baptist, 
and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked him and said, Whoa, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. (laughs) Andrew, Bram. Okay, Andrew brings people to be in contact with Jesus. He's quite different from his brother. Peter's a little bit more gregarious, right? A little bit more out there. Kind of the mouth before the... Well, yeah, I know. But we get so much out of Peter, I love it. So he brings Peter to Jesus. Again, same thing. He brings a boy to Jesus who has five loaves and two fish. Question. When God wrote the text of Scripture for us, he was very specific and detailed on everything that's in there. So my question to you is, do you not trigger you in your thinking to go, why is he stating that they're barley loaves? Now you want to do some more digging. Now you want to do a little bit deeper research of barley. Is that the bread of the day? You know, I haven't had any barley in ever. See, boy, we got another guy who enters into the situation. A boy, a boy, part of the large crowd, he had food. Food enough probably for himself, obviously. It's more of a small lunch or a small snack. And we get some insight. Barley loaves, key issue. Barley loaves were the bread of the poor, of the destitute. They weren't the best of the bread. It was a little loaf. And we're probably looking at a little two fish. You're thinking of like, you know, filleted fish, all nice and everything. Probably a pickle relish, a fish pickle relish, okay, a fish relish, possibly, traditionally for that time. But again, it's really not enough, but Andrew brings him to Jesus, but doesn't get all the way to say, Jesus, do it. So Andrew brings the boy with his meal, but again, he fails. Let me ask you this question. Do you bring people into contact with Jesus? Do you? That's all Andrew did. He got Peter and brought him to be in contact with Jesus. That's the same call we have. Bring them into contact with Jesus. Do you share the truths of Scripture with those around you as you bring them into contact with Jesus? Part of that can be your testimony about your life and it's more specifically about what Jesus has done. Because it highlights Jesus. It doesn't highlight you. It highlights Jesus and what he's done using a vessel like you. Andrew loved to bring people to Jesus. It was the center of who he was. Is that your center? Well, if not, why not? Let me ask you these questions. Is it because you do not have a living relationship with Jesus yourself? Oh, we're all in church. Why would you think that? Because a lot of us can grow up in church and in religion and never come in contact with Jesus. Come to Jesus and know him. Apart from a relationship with Jesus, you are condemned to a life in hell, separated forever from Jesus because of your sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, for the wages of sin is death, but because Christ died on the cross to make the full payment of your sins, you have new life. A new life 
that he has breathed in when you turn from your way of living to a life of obedience to God. This is the gift of God to us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You come to Jesus by turning completely away from your sins and your self-driven, independent life. You move from a life independent of God to a life fully dependent on God for all things. Paul was pretty serious about it when he's talking to the church in Corinth in the, in the last chapter, chapter 13 of, of 2 Corinthians. Paul asked a pretty simple question. Examine yourself to know whether you be in the faith. He's asking this at the church. He's not asking this at the folks out in the street. So let me ask you this, to examine your life and to see whether or not, and asking these two questions of yourself, if you were, or just one question, if you died tonight and met Jesus and he would literally straight face to face with you say, why should I let you in my heaven, what would you say? Because I'm a good person. I went to Lakeside my whole life. I grew up. I was almost birthed here. I can tell you everything about Andrew, James, and John, and Peter. The only answer that you and I will have is just very simple. It's nothing about me, Jesus. It's nothing I can do. It's all about you. It's all what you did, Jesus, for me. Dying and paying for my sins. That's all I can say. I don't come with anything. I don't come with any options. It's all of you, Jesus. So let me ask you to do examine yourself this week. Spend the deep time and look deep inside. Look past all the religion, all of all the things, and get down to the core of your life and say, If I died now, do I know that Jesus is my only all in all because I surrendered my life to him? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for helping us to see that we can't do it on our own and we shouldn't. Thank you for Philip for showing us the mistake, the wrong way to do it. Father, also thank you for giving us Andrew Andrew got closer, but again, did not surrender and say, here's a boy with barley loaves and fish. I know you can make this to feed the crowd. He didn't get that far either. Father, help us not to be faithless. Help us to be ever dependent upon you for everything. Father, thank you so much for your love, your compassion, your care for us. Thank you so much for sending Jesus to live that perfect life, to be able to take on the weight of sin of my life. Father, help us to be men and women who surrender to you all things always and desire to know the word more, to know you more. Father, we thank you and love you for your compassion and care for us daily. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.